from the Atonement Fargo studio on South University Drive in Fargo, North Dakota. This is That Podcast? To contact the crew, submit your questions or comments, do it at atonement.live slash podcast. And now, here's those crazy people with That Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of That Podcast. My name is Ryan Janke, and today, again, I will be joined by Pastor DJ Lura and Sarah DeYoung. DJ, Sarah, Sarah. We're recording. Did you hit record this time? (laughs) I did. First fail. Well, I'll answer your question uh, again if I can. You you asked, how are we doing? And and I said, uh, you know, today's a big day. Uh, Summer has officially begun for my kids because... um, uh, uh, they finished their schoolwork for the year uh, at at the Lura House of Studies, and uh, they all got S's. So they are satisfactory. The, the satisfactory. Yes. What was it? S and U. S and U. Yeah, it was. It, why not pass or fail? Well, uh, maybe that. Fa- I think fail is is considered maybe a little harsh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. We got to be careful nowadays. Yeah. yeah. It's not even win or lose. It's it's. Um, uh, come in first or, or not win. Yeah. I think is the, <laughs> is the terms that are used, but no, it was, it was really good to do, uh, at home remote schooling. I think, mm-hmm. um, I had kids in every grade. I had, um, a high schooler and I, I haven't seen her for three months. She just goes <laughs> and does her stuff. I have a middle schooler who would come up and have lunch every so often. And then I had, uh, my kindergartner, who he and I were inseparable the last three months, um, and you know, it's it's one of those things where I've always appreciated teachers. I grew up; um, my my parents were both teachers. My brother's a teacher, and I think teachers work really hard and um, deserve all kinds of good things, including a lot of thank yous from parents. Uh, but first and foremost, um, my kids' teachers, and this is my opinion. Um, they're, we're not, they're not babysitters that we're dropping them off with the teachers. Um, the parents are the primary teachers of kids. And so for me to be actually in that role in a, in a, in a um, daily, very consistent way has been, you know, a, a eye-opening a bit as to how much to appreciate the teachers that um, guide our kids uh, but also to recognize that I think I've I've peaked at my skill level. Mm-hmm. Um, I've mastered kindergarten. I don't think I could <laughs> handle first grade. Um, but it's been it's been really good to connect with my kids in that way. And I hope that now that school is done, that it doesn't mean tossing the books and and getting everything back. And uh, with my son, at least, I'd like to continue uh, reading. I mean, he's in kindergarten. He's reading, and that mm-hmm. just blows me away because I don't think I was reading until like first grade or second grade. Yeah. And you were a little more hands-on than me because uh, I have an eighth grader and a fifth grader. And it's good that we're done now after only three months because I was trending towards the uh, not as smart as a fifth grader uh, for sure. You weren't catching on to that new math they're teaching. Oh, man. Well, you that's know. better than me. I was thinking I'm not I'm not <laughs> smarter than a first grader because... <laughs> It was getting interesting. Yeah, but it does give you a new appreciation for uh, teachers and what they do. Uh, I saw a, uh, early on, I saw something online that that had a, a parent calling into the teacher and the teacher saying, I don't know what you're talking about. 
she's perfectly <laughs> fine when she's here. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that was good. So well, with with only a handful of kids, as compared to like a kindergarten teacher, I, I just had one child, mm-hmm. and uh, there were times that I was ready to send him to detention, yeah, or expulsion. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine what what teachers go through that have a, a full classroom of 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 that age at least, and trying to keep their attention. It, it's they hats off to them. They they are they are the true heroes here. I'm I'm probably. Not going to get this number accurate, but I grew up uh, until eighth grade in Wishick, North Dakota, which had a small, you know, is a small town, small school. But we had close to 30 kids in that. In one classroom. In one classroom. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and that was, I mean, you're talking in the early 80s. So. Yeah. <laughs> that was when we were still, you know. There weren't. There were rules, right? But, but you know, yes, rules. Yes. <laughs> there are air quotes in there somewhere. Air, yeah, air quotes in there. Yeah, it seems like kids are a little more well behaved, or maybe it just seems that way to me. Then, yes, <laughs> <laughs> Sandlot type stuff. Right. Exactly. So, oh, the eighties were great. I'm surprised any of us are alive because the things that we were allowed to do then, I think they're all outlawed. We made it, yeah. Uh, you know, I hope I don't get my dad in trouble, but I think the statute of limitations has come to an end. But I can remember <laughs> as a kid uh, having to take um, um, debris from from leaves and stuff in the fall. Mm-hmm. You just load them up in the back of the truck and say, "All right, hop in the back and hold them down," and we would drive with me in the back, laying on the leaves. You know, to keep them from blowing away. Yeah, uh, out to the, <laughs> out to the dump or out to the landfill and 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 or wherever the the legal place was to do that and and to get rid of them. I can remember standing up in the front cab, mm-hmm. um, without a seatbelt on, and waving at police cars. Yeah, yeah. You would you would stand. You'd be in the car, in the back seat, standing on the the transmission hump, right? <laughs> yep. And then you had bucket seats in front of you, so you had an elbow on each seat and just, yeah, yeah. looking through the window and waving. Yeah. I was driving at 12 out on the farm. Yeah, of course. I would not let my 14-year-old anywhere <laughs> near the driver's seat of anything. Well, I'm even surprised. At, I think I was talking to Lisa Hansen about this because she was like, I don't know what it is nowadays for the right age that your kids can stay home alone for a, like a full day in the summer. And I was like, where's that age I was doing that at like eight. My sister was ten. Staying home. Alone? Yeah, we yeah. survived the summer. It's fine. Yeah, nobody died. We still have all eight <laughs> fingers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A little slow on the uptake there for me. Wednesday. I gotta drink more coffee. Oh yeah, it's fun. Fun times. It is. Absolutely. It is definitely different though. Even for you, Sarah, though, it's different. Mm-hmm. We keep bringing up the 95 thing, but you can't remember a time before. I mean, you can remember before 9-11, but Barely. like getting on an airplane or anything like that. Well, or even just, I remember I grew up in a downtown church and I work at CCRI and I have clients who go to downtown churches in Fargo and just the difference of like, I remember we had a choir director when I was in middle school where she's like, if you're going to the bathroom, you, you need to have a buddy. If you're going to be going out in the halls, like you can't just be doing it by yourself. And we're like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> this is like 
early 2000s-ish, so we didn't know that there was danger in the world. And then <laughs> even now I'm like, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't let somebody go like in a downtown church or even sometimes like thankfully we're on the outskirts of town, but know where your kids are, where where other people are. and Just wandering around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I remember as a kid, you know, when summertime came, it was mom said, go outside. Mm -hmm. And we'd come home for lunch and then we'd be gone again and we wouldn't come home until dark. Um, But I lived in a small enough town that, I mean, you couldn't get into trouble because everyone knew who you were and everyone was keeping eyes on you and knew exactly who to call. You so. wouldn't want to get in trouble. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's like, you know, we have the Ten Commandments, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if the Ten don't get you, the Eleventh Commandment will. And you know what the Eleventh Commandment is? What would the neighbors think? <laughs> if the first Ten don't get you, that one will get you. That will shame you every time. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so since we're talking about how times are different and times are changing. Today we're talking about denominations and then also the Christianese, kind of the the insidery language, the insidery, all the whatnots and that. So I guess I'm kind of taking the lead today about, so denominations, because I know personally whenever I talk about, yep, I work at Atonement, usually it's just Atonement Church or Atonement Fargo. Is DJ, in your perspective as a pastor, are denominations important for the future of church? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I guess um, it, it, there's a couple of assumptions that come out of the question, and I think I know what you're asking, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back a little bit, okay? Um, the first question is, I think, um, why are there denominations, and when did denominations start? And if you look at the Bible— Denomination started right at the beginning. So um, early in the church, the church was united in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's what united us, all all Christians everywhere. But even in um, the first generation, there were camps forming. And you have like the churches that were started by Paul. You have the churches that were started by Peter. You have the churches that were started by John. You have the the Church of Jerusalem, and all of them had different um, emphases and what they thought was important about being the church. They all believed in Jesus Christ. They all believed in the resurrection uh, uh, from the dead. They all believed that Christ would come again. But what do we do in the meantime? And so very early on, you had a united church, but you had different camps. Well, Going forward to about uh, uh, 325 A.D., 325 years, you have the emerging church becomes a sanctioned, national, um, protected church within pagan Rome, which always had kind of this postmodern idea that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, Live and let live. In fact, um, believe in any God you want, the more gods, the better. As long as they're on our side, sounds great. Um, But with Christianity being standardized and then becoming the norm within Rome, with paganism coming to an end, you had the birth of Christendom. Now, within Christendom, from 325 A.D. till about 1000 A.D., you had um, one Christian, 
universal Orthodox church, uh, one church um, for the most part. And what united the church was the authority of um, the church leaders as well as three creeds or confessions of faith. And these are the Athanasian Creed, uh, the Nicene Creed, and the Apostles' Creed. Now, I'm, I'm simplifying this a bit because there's much more to it, but um, those three creeds make clear what it is that we believe, teach, and confess as Christians. You cannot be a Christian without agreeing with those three creeds and what they have to say about God because they were written in order to um, protect the faith but also to distinguish the faith from false teaching. Every one of the creeds have um, certain points that are aimed at heresy, at, at false teaching about the faith. Okay. Well, what happens in 1000 AD is you have a split in the church and two denominations form. And so the, the one holy Catholic apostolic Orthodox church becomes two churches. Um, the Western Latin-speaking Catholic Church, and Catholic means universal, and the Eastern Greek-speaking Orthodox Church, and orthodoxy means true. So they're synonyms. Both Catholic and Orthodox are, are synonyms. Uh, but there's a split within Christendom into those two churches. Okay? So now you fast forward 500 years, and you come to what we've experienced in Western culture, um, a schism within the Western church. And this was known as the uh, Protestant Reformation. But even before the Protestant Reformation, you had the Lutheran Reformation. I don't even know if Lutherans know this, but prior to the Protestant Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation happened first. Um, so Luther, the Lutheran Reformation is, was always meant to be an evangelical um, reforming movement within the church. It wasn't meant to become its own denomination. That wasn't its intention. Um, but in 1521, you had something called the Diet of Worms. Um, to read it, it looks like it says Diet of Worms. I was just going like, to ask if, keto if, or? if it's similar... <laughs> Does that, I think that's on the keto diet. Does that work into your whole 30? <laughs> you know, I think, I think it would, actually, now that I think about it. Just dirt and protein, and you're good. But, um, no, the Diet of Worms was a gathering of church officials under the authority of the emperor and the pope in order to um, discern whether or not someone was committing heresy and to discuss the teachings of the church. And the Diet of Worms took place in Worms, Germany. And Luther was called there. Martin Luther was called there. He, 1517 is when most people think the Lutheran Reformation began. But 1521 is where um, the Lutheran Church was born. Because the Reformation had already begun. But what happened was, at the Diet of Worms, Luther was brought before the Spanish Inquisition. Now, we all know uh, Monty Python lines. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition, right? Well, Luther was brought before the Inquisition and was told to recant of all of his writings 
because the Pope had ruled, um, um, had 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 put a had put forth a papal bull of excommunication against Luther. Um, basically, saying he's not he's not Christian, he's not part of the church. And Luther, the entire time, had been trying to reform the church to turn it back toward sacred scripture, God's word, Jesus Christ as the center, rather than all the other things that we bring into the church, um, tradition, practices, cultural practices, all those things can influence us. Um, Luther was, was seeking to restore Christ as the center of the church. Um, at 1521, he was told to recant. And we have these, these, this famous saying of Luther where he says, um, um, unless I can be shown by scripture or plain reason, I cannot and I will not recant. My conscience is bound to the word of God, and it is neither right nor safe to go against conscience. Now, another line was added to that. That's become kind of synonymous with the Diet of Worms and Luther is this famous saying, which he never said, but it's become this famous saying, here I stand, I can do no other, may God help me. At that point, Luther was put under the ban by the emperor, which means that if you were going to be a loyal citizen of Germany and a good Christian, you were required to kill Luther on sight. Um, what ends up happening is his, his ruler, his prince um, of the land that he lived in, in Saxony, um, kidnapped him and hid him away in a castle called the Wartburg, the Wartburg Castle. And he stayed there for a time, and during that time, he translated something that that the church said you cannot do. He translated the Latin Vulgate, or the the Bible in Latin, into common German for the German people to be able to read it with their own eyes. This sparked um, not just a reformation within the church Catholic, but the call for a new church. Because um, what comes later in 1526 is... The, um, the Diet of Augsburg, when the Lutherans, as they were now being called, and Luther never wanted the church to be called Lutheran. Um, thankfully, he wasn't that pompous in that regard. Um, he always thought of the movement as Christian or evangelical. Evangelical means gospel-focused. Uh, in modern America, evangelical has come to mean, I think, Baptist. That's usually what people think of, or like a political movement, those those evangelical voters, whatever that means. But evangelical is a Lutheran term. It's our word. And it means um, gospel-centered, gospel-focused, good newsies. Um, and he wanted this to be called the evangelical church or just the Christian church. But you get named by your enemies. And so... Those who agreed with Luther became known as Lutherans. And the Lutherans gave it back just as much and said, well, if you're not with Luther, then you must be one of those Romans or Papists. And thus we have the birth of the terms Lutheran and Roman Catholic. Prior to that, it was just the church. Now, all kinds of things happen. And as the Reformation is happening in Germany amongst the Lutherans, the Reformation begins to happen all through Christendom in Europe because it was just, it was just a tinderbox waiting to explode. And they had this great new technology 
in order to argue concerns about the direction of the of the the church, the church Catholic, and wanting a return to scripture. And this new technology was the printing press. And with the printing press, these ideas of reform within the church were able to be spread all over Europe. It's why Luther was as influential as he was, because his writings would be taken and spread all over Europe very quickly because of the printing press. Not because he wanted it to be done that way, but because his stuff was so popular once it started spreading. Now, um, this led to power and control and so on, but at the same time that the Lutheran Reformation was taking place, you began to have a Reformation in Switzerland by a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. And this became the Swiss Reformation, and you had a French Reformation. You had a Reformation all over the place. Um, and that all those Reformations together became known as generally the Protestant Reformation. But even for the Lutherans, this is the interesting part, I think. As Luther and the Lutheran churches, the evangelical churches, began protesting the abuses as they saw them in the Catholic Church, they also noticed abuses from their perspective in all of the other Protestant churches. And all the other Protestant churches, like the Swiss Reformed or what became known as the Presbyterians, or um, any number of these groups saw errors in everyone else. Everyone's really started to measure each other according to um, their viewpoint of what Scripture was saying. And so, why do we have all these different denominations? Well, it, it's it's a bit of a a response in history, but I I like to think that from a historical perspective and trying to see God's hand in it, it reminds me a little bit like the, like the Tower of Babel, mm. where everything was so centralized. And when things get so centralized, when power gets so centralized, what ends up happening? We end up staring at, our, at ourselves and glorifying in ourselves. And with the, um, the vacuum of power taken out of the Western church because of the Protestant Reformation, you now had an explosion of ideas and technology and all kinds of things that was happening the same time that the Enlightenment was taking place. And so when I think about just the way history has moved, there would not be a United States if there was not a Lutheran Reformation. There would not be the things that we see today without the birth of the Church of England, without the birth of the Presbyterian Church. Uh, uh, the idea of freedom of religion and freedom of expression can be traced directly back to the events that caused denominationalism to happen. So fast forward a little bit, and you come to today. Um, my feeling is that in the span of history, Christendom, for the most part, has come to an end. And with the end of Christendom comes also the end of hardline denominationalism. It's still very prevalent in the United States. Um, it's, it's pretty irrelevant in Europe and other parts of the world. But denominationalism is tied into tradition and, and often culture pieces. And I think that as you see 
what's happening to the churches in the United States, the mainline churches, those that come out of the Protestant Reformation, the, 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 the Reformed churches, the United Church of Christ, the Methodist Church, the Episcopalian Church, um, I think we're seeing a sifting happening where the old marks of, well, you're a Lutheran, so you're going to go to a Lutheran church. You're a, a Baptist, so you're going to go to a Baptist church. da 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 Those are being taken down, and what's replacing them is a distinction that's based on, do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Um, and do you believe he died for the sins of the world? Like it's a, It's almost like it's a return to those three primary creeds again as as the real measure. Now, it's not to say that the differences between the different Christian denominations are not important. They are. And I think it's important to recognize the distinctiveness of each of the traditions. Um, but there's a difference between what is important and what is um, an indifferent matter as far as distinctions are concerned. Um, when you want to talk about what is really the difference between the denominations, for Lutherans at least, the difference comes down to an understanding of how God breaks in upon you right here and now through the Word of God. The biggest separator between Lutherans and the Roman Catholics is this phrase. Uh, Lutherans believe that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. That one word is a big hang-up. For Roman Catholics, they teach that we are saved by grace through faith and love uh, and works. Um, we are saved by grace through faith and works of love. Um, so for them, it's faith and works. Now, what does that mean? It's, it's about what God does and what you do that saves you. Roman Catholics. For Lutherans, it's not about what we do. It's about what God does for us in Jesus Christ. And the result is spontaneous good works for the sake of the neighbor. Because once I'm rightly aligned with God through faith, then I'm free of my sinful proclivities to only be concerned about myself and my own well-being, and I'm able to actually take care of somebody other than me. Um, the biggest difference between Lutherans and pretty much all other Protestants is the understanding of preaching and the means of grace. For Lutherans, baptism actually does something to you. The Lord's Supper actually does something to you and for you. For um, the Reformed Church, for the Presbyterians, uh, Baptism is a sign that you belong to God's people, but it's, it's not a means of grace. It doesn't actually do anything to you, per se. And the Lord's Supper is, at worst, nothing more than a memorial, a, a ritual that we are to repeat in order to remember that Jesus died for us. Um, and at best, that it is nothing more than, it, it is no more than... Um, the spiritual presence of Jesus, that it's still bread and wine, but Jesus promises his spirit in it that you receive. 
For Lutherans, we confess that Jesus Christ is truly present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. When you eat the bread, you're eating the body of Christ. Not as a symbol, not as a, a, a spiritual matter. It is truly Jesus, where he promises to be in such a way that you can grab a hold of him. Now, when you go further down the line of the Reformation, you have another group known as the Anabaptist Reformation. Um, modern American Baptists are kind of a, a, a mix of both. They come out of a, the, pros, the, the Presbyterian Reformed wing, as well as a, a mixture of the Anabaptist wing in the United States. And their main point is, is they agree with Lutherans that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Here's where we differ. They say, but you got to make your own personal choice. Otherwise, you're not saved. So from, from a Baptist point of view, I'm having some mic trouble here big time, aren't I? Let's get this locked in. Do you see me going lower and lower? Okay. There we go. I was go. thinking, you know, your chiropractor. Yeah, right. <laughs> Hopefully that'll hold it. So um, the, the biggest distinction really, again, is also for the Baptists, um, the sacraments are not sacraments. They're ordinances. They're commands by God that you are to carry out, but they don't do anything. They don't, they don't actually do Christ's forgiveness to you. For Lutherans, they do. Um, how can I know that my sins are forgiven? I ate the bread. I drank the wine. Um, the, the larger Baptist tradition, which would also include the term evangelical and non-denominational or um, uh, community church, whatever the, the name may be, um, the, the theology is, is very much a, a, a Baptist or Anabaptist theology, which means that you cannot get baptized as a baby because it doesn't do anything for you. You need to get baptized as an adult once you've made your choice for Jesus. And therefore, the baptism does not, is not a means of grace by which God saves the person, um, creates faith in their heart. Baptism is simply... You making the commitment that you're going to live like how a Christian should live and that you now belong to this church. So for the Baptist religion, you can get baptized, uh, Baptist church, you can get tradition, you can get baptized many times. Because Anabaptist means rebaptize. For Lutherans, we baptize once for all, and we, we trust that God's hand is in the midst of it. And so we baptize babies. And adults. We'll, we'll dunk you no matter what your age is, but we only do it once because it's God's first and final promise concerning you. That's, those are the distinctions that we have. Now, does that mean that I think Baptists are not going to go to heaven? I No, that's, that's, that's for God to, to judge. Um, but there are distinctions. There are, there are differences. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, uh, if you believe that, that Jesus Christ will come again, um, you are my brother or sister in Christ, regardless of your denominational affiliation. And that's what I mean about this great sifting that's happening. Um, do, I, do I think that they are um, incorrect on certain issues, such as the efficacy or the, the value of the sacraments? Yes, I do. Um, do I think that, that the Catholic Church is in error to think that um, the Pope is the head of the Christian church on earth? Yes, I do. But that doesn't mean that they're not Christian. And I think that the big distinction, if you really needed a line drawn in the sand, it really comes down to 
If you believe what the three ecumenical creeds express, then you are Christian. If you do not, then you are not Christian. Um, and there are several different flavors of Christianity within that because I think God works in such a way to speak his word to those who need to hear it. Um, now, again, that's not to say that I think that the Lutheran tradition cannot be of great value to everyone. I think it very much is, and it has a voice to speak. Um, and I think we are correct according to how Scripture speaks to me um, by what we believe, teach, and confess. Um, that is a really long answer to to answer your question. Does that help? Yes, well, because so I've always kind of taken the denomination side of it as like, I remember growing up, it was either, yep, you're Catholic or you're Lutheran, because I'm from the Midwest, you know, yep, yep. you're a real rogue, you're Baptist or something like that. But seeing it more as for people who are new Christian, it's kind of like another hoop to have to jump through of like, oh, great, I need to figure out if I'm Christian. And then I also need to figure out if I'm a Lutheran or a Baptist or this other, these other weird words they just keep throwing at me. And right. so, well, and here's yes. a very Lutheran answer to that. You need, to, once Christ tackles you, in whatever way that may be, um, you need to gather with a group of believers who are going to give you Christ, who are going to love you, and whom you can hear the Lord speaking to you in the midst of that of that gathering, in the midst of that church. Um, and if what they're proclaiming to you is in line with Holy Scripture and points to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for you, well, then it doesn't, the rest of it is just kind of tradition, right? Um, and being being Scandinavian, I'm all for the Lutheran tradition. I love it. I, I, it's, it's another language that I speak. Um, but there is no true denomination on earth that is the true church. The true church, uh, Christ's kingdom on earth, is invisible at this time until he comes again. And it's known not by a denominational affiliation, but by faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so it's really, the distinctions really come down to history. Um, some points that you just cannot find agreement on, we're either saved by faith alone or we're saved by faith and works. There's, there's no wiggle room there. And yet, Christians who do good works, does that mean that they're saved from a Catholic perspective? And for Catholics who don't put any trust in their good works, but trust in Christ alone, are they saved? Well, it finally comes down to Christ, right? And for, for um, Baptists who say that they accepted Jesus Christ on, on one day, uh, you know, June 5th, 1945, and, and uh, I, I, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, if you nudge them enough, what you get is actually a confession, not of their choice, but that they would never have chosen without the work of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. which is exactly what Lutherans believe. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would add one more thing to this. People put labels on what kind of Christian they are. Uh, Catholic. Uh, lapsed Catholic. I've heard that one, too. That one's kind of fun. Uh, La lapsed Catholic? Lapsed Catholic. What's lapsed Catholic? Well, they're, they're Catholic. <laughs> They just don't go to go to mass every oh, okay. day. Okay, that's my you know? dad. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's just Christmas and Easter, right? Lapsed Catholic, um, born again Christian, um, evangelical, 
non-denominational. I was, that one always cracked me up because non-denominational really is a denomination. Mm-hmm. It's just calling itself, we're not a denomination. You just have to dig a little bit and you'll find it. Yeah, and most often it's Baptist. I mean, that the theolo- you can see the theology as it comes out. And often what it, what it pertains about with the Baptist tradition or the evangelical tradition in the United States. And remember, I, know, I hope I'm not being too confusing. Evangelical is a Lutheran word. But we have sold our heritage for a bit of pottage like Esau <laughs> by not sharing the good news as we um, are called to do with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the dominant, the dominant understanding of evangelical comes out of Baptist preaching. You know, Billy Graham. Great stuff, by the way. I'm not, I'm not knocking it in any way. I'm just laying out a little bit of the history of these things. Um, but from an evangelical perspective... Their sacrament, to use Lutheran languages, is the altar call. Now, what's interesting about that is Lutherans have an altar call too, but we call it the Lord's Supper, and we do it over and over again. We baptize once, and we altar call over and over and over again. Uh, Baptists baptize many times and altar call at least once. Um, so, I mean, do I think that that is how you can know that you're a Christian? I do not. Um, I disagree with the Baptists there, but that that doesn't mean that they're not Christian. Um, I think that trusting in God's grace is a better way to go, and putting labels on all these things. What kind of Christian? What kind of Christian it is is really just saying um, it, it's it's helping to describe who you are in a country that's very that's full of Christian denominations. Um, in the Lutheran circle, which isn't that big in the United States, but just the same, we have plenty of those too. Are you a, an ELCA Lutheran or a Missouri Synod Lutheran or maybe you're Wells Lutheran, to use different terms like that? Um, we like our alphabet soup. So I, but if you really want to get into a label for Lutherans in general, um, I, I've made the argument that you could call Lutherans confessing Christians because our entire faith, what we believe, teach, and confess— and it's, it's a theologically loaded word, but it, it's, it's confessing who we are and who God is for us. And we have those in actual documents, the three ecumenical creeds and the documents that are in the Book of Concord that sum up what it is that we believe the Bible is proclaiming. Okay. I'll take a breath. <laughs> when you get outside of the United States... I, I know uh, LCMC, which Atonement is affiliated with. Yeah. It, uh, for those who don't know, it's Lutheran Congregations and Mission for Christ. Right. The, Put that in your Lutheran dictionary. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess what I'm asking is, are there when you, when you get outside of the United States, are there are there less, um, you know, less of the alphabet soup, or or is that uh, uniquely uh, United States sort of thing. Well, I think it's, I think it's uniquely regional. Um, not just like blanketed in the United States. I lived in Washington state for a long time. And, um, uh, I knew all kinds of people, many different flavors of Christianity. And we, we still had our differences. I mean, I, was, I, I learned the small catechism. You know, I was taught it's all about grace. And I had many Baptist friends that were like, yeah, but have you really accepted Jesus? Have you? I'm like, I, I think so. Uh, <laughs> but the point being is that, you know, 
Faith comes from what is heard. What is heard is the word of Christ, and no one can say Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit puts that in them. That's Scripture. That's that's Corinthians. No one can say Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit puts that on them. And no one will say Jesus is cursed and have the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, if you want proof of whether you're saved or not, do you believe that Jesus is your Lord? Yeah. Well, have you accepted him? Well, I'm not kind of redundant. I think he accepted me. Um, (laughs) He he claimed me. So, and that's an issue of confession. But um, there were Baptists, Catholics, a few Lutherans, Methodists, non-denominationals, and we were the minority because the vast majority of our area, our community in Washington State was was, um, nuns before nuns were cool. You know, this is back in the 90s. Uh, The Pacific Northwest very much was a mission area then, and it probably even more so is now. And so those differences between denominations kind of peeled away when you recognize, oh, you're not the, we, we, we can't, we aren't comfortable enough to be able to pick on each other. We recognize that there's a, there's kingdom issues that are greater. Um, when you get to places like (laughs) North Dakota, Mm -hmm. well, now it's not just differences between denominations, it's differences between Lutherans. Yeah. You can split mm-hmm. it down even more into your own little camps, right? And like I mentioned, this go this is biblical. This goes all the way back to to the Council of Jerusalem, the first ecumenical council that is mentioned in Acts. Um when you go outside the United States, many of the churches throughout Asia and Africa um were were planted by missionaries from the West, from Europe, the United States. They are going to be um, our preachers coming to us because they are now concerned about the United States. Um, and this is a good thing. This is how God works. Um, but I, I just want to share a little anecdote, and I don't know if this is the case everywhere, but I get a sense that there's more unity in Christianity and other parts of the world where Christianity is not so dominant Mm -hmm. and the denominations just melt away. An interesting example I think is happening in Africa. And I think this is something we can all learn from in the United States. The Lutherans in Africa and the Pentecostals in Africa are discovering that they are brothers and are learning from each other the Pentecostals are learning the value of of the Orthodox teachings that you think about from the Lutherans, as well as the gift of the sacraments. Whereas the Pentecostals are blessing the Lutherans to rediscover heart language that worships God. So you have this great mixing of of a historical faith that goes back to the 1500s in the Lutheran tradition, as well as the explosion, the spirit-filled explosion in the 19th and 20th centuries that has become known as the Pentecostal movement. Um, I, I, I see, for myself, I see, I see bits of that happening in the United States too. And that's a good thing, that we don't hide back in our, in our white castles and think that, you know, we're going to be the only ones in heaven, but actually listen to brothers and sisters in Christ who may come from a different faith tradition and maybe even speaking a different language, but are we saying the same thing? And can we connect that way? 
without saying, nope, it's not my language. I'm not interested in what you have to say. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an exciting thing. That's, that's a, I think that's a God thing. Like I said, it's the sifting happening. Do you believe that the word of God is true? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? Do you believe that he'll come again? I mean, that's, that is the heart of all of the three ecumenical creeds. Um, and really is, I think, the measure by which you can know whether or not someone is um, a Christian, regardless of denominational affiliation. Mm. Oh. So we're going to take a break from our alphabet soup quick to hear about what we have coming on Sunday. Blukey, right, Ryan? Uh, it's the one, the one over there. Yeah, I think you're on it now. We'll find out. Hey, everyone, Ryan from that podcast here. I hope you're enjoying the show. I wanted to take a minute to invite you to join us as we spend the summer with the Psalms here at Atonement. Summer with the Psalms kicked off on May 31st, but it's not too late to catch right up and worship with us as we dig deep into the book of Psalms. This sermon series will run until early September. So grab your Bible or Bible app and join us every Sunday morning at 9 and 10.30 a.m. at atonementfargo.org, atonement.live, or YouTube. You can also catch past services on YouTube. Please, Join us for Summer with the Psalms at Atonement. And now, back to the show. So, despite from, or despite from all the different denominations, I feel like the one thing that also brings Christians together besides our root beliefs is our love for a language of Christianese. Mm -hmm. Of the weird words. So, I, I just have a... For surely two just different ones sure. that for both of you want to hear your take on. Why do we use them? What is, what is the importance of them? The first one is narthex. Yeah, so um, <laughs> here's the thing about the church. When I was ordained, um, the, the liturgical churches, to add another label to different churches, are those that follow a form of worship which goes back to at least the third century. And um, the clothing, it seemed, really hit its high point in the 1500s. So um, every church that I've served has had the tradition of me wearing um, the finest clothes of 1546 with a clerical, which is the, the white thing that goes around the neck for pastors. It's a, it's a symbol of the office of pastor and like a black shirt or a liturgically colored shirt, like blue or, or green or whatever. And then on top of that, you would put a robe and you would then put a rope belt around you. But in the church, we give everything fancy names. Uh, weird. I, as I, as I tell our, our first communion kids, I'll take them on a tour of our worship space and I give them a, a slip, and we do a little bit of a scavenger hunt, finding the weird, wonderful words when we worship. And they'll walk around, I'll say something, and, and they have to go find it and point it out. Um, my joke is this. If I was to go to Menards and buy a rope for a belt, it would cost me $3. If I'm going to be in church and I call that rope a stole, 
it then cost me thirteen dollars. <laughs> um, <laughs> it has to do with with church history that that these terms come about and they stay with people as they're passed on from generation to generation. I mean, tradition is a wonderful thing when it points to Christ. So the term that you use has to do with church architecture, the narthex, okay? Um, The narthex refers to the space outside of the nave, which is the, um, a nave is, is, is the space in a boat that's in the middle, like, like in a big ship, like think think of Noah's Ark and think of every worship space as designed to be the Ark, this place where God has protected us against the storms raging outside, and where the things of God are are taking place. That's the idea of the Ark. That this is God's creation as it's meant to be, protected by God in harmony with one another. I mean, you had all kinds of animals on there, you know, predator and prey on the Ark, and yet all of them survived the flood in order. God to do go about his business of creation. Um, outside of the nave is the narthex. That's the gathering area before you enter into the worship space. And the nave is the place where the people are gathered in the worship space. So we'd call it, here we'd call it sanctuary, the sanctuary or, so, or the ark. Well, yeah. yes, yes. At, the, here at atonement. Well, yes, and, and both terms um, touch on what is happening. It it. It's, those are both actually symbolic terms, both the ark and the sanctuary for the worship space. Because the sanctuary in the worship space um, is nowhere in the worship space except right around the Lord's table. Like, like a foot around the Lord's table. Oh. Because when you enter into a worship space, you start in the narthex. You can call this the lobby or the gathering area. You walk in through the doors and you're in the nave. The nave is the, the main seating place of the gathered people, the assembly. Well, then you go about a step up, and it's usually a step up, and you enter into an area called the chancel. Now, the chancel is where there are three pieces of furniture. There is the altar, or the Lord's table. There is the lectern, and there is the pulpit. What is happening in the chancel? Um, The word of God is being distributed to the people in the nave. Now, what is is the lectern and what is the pulpit? The lectern's on the left. (laughs) The lectern is on the left, and the lectern is a reading desk for the word of God. And it's usually read by a lector who reads scripture, usually uh, a first lesson from the Old Testament, a psalm, a second lesson from one of the New Testament epistles or letters, and then um, those three lessons are read at the lectern. The pulpit is where the gospel is read, if it's read in the chancel. Uh, otherwise, the other place to read it is actually in the nave. You walk down and you read it in the, in the presence of the people. Um, and then the pulpit is where... Um, Oratory preaching happens, where the preacher preaches the word of God, not reads the word of God, speaks it, speaks it and um, gives a homily or a message based on the scripture that has been heard that was read. Usually it's the gospel text. I think I'm losing the mic again. Um, Now here's a little bit of trivia, and I really wish that 
Pastor Cross was here because he's he's the trivia master. Um, he would have a heyday with this. Should we call him in? <laughs> we might have to call <laughs> him in. Um, if you only have one podium in the chancel area, it is not called the pulpit, and it is not called the lectern. It is called the ombo. Why? I have no idea. But the ombo is the one place where announcements as well as the reading of scripture and preaching all take place in the chancel level. Now, the last thing in there, aside from the, the two reading desks, the, the lectern and the pulpit, is what's called the altar, or more properly, the Lord's table. Um, the Lord's table is where Jesus promises to show up in our presence in a physical way through the gift of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. And the area, and usually it's raised one more step. So, so you went up one step into the chancel, and you went up another step, and that area is usually raised, and there's about a footstep all the way around the Lord's table if it's removed from the wall. And that area alone is called the sanctuary. Okay? Now, a little little trivia quiz. I, I've asked this before. Let's see if you can guess it. There's a name even for the wall behind the Lord's table. I know it. Do know you it. know what that wall is called? Ding. Where's my buzzer? I know it. Uh, is it sacristy? No. No. Oh, never mind. That's space paint. It's the east wall. Oh. It's called the east wall. Even if you're not, fa- even if the wall is not facing east, it's still called the east wall. And this goes back very early into Christianity in the first couple of centuries. Wherever a Christian was in the Roman world, which was basically the known world at that time, they would kneel and bow and pray in the direction of Jerusalem. And if they didn't know what direction Jerusalem was, because what happens in Jerusalem? Jesus is crucified Jerusalem. God on earth, physically. If they didn't know what direction Jerusalem was, they would pray in the direction of east. And so when we worship, we are all praying in the direction of the east wall because of that reason. Hmm. And another little tidbit about that, um, Muslims practice the same thing. They borrowed it from Christians. The idea of kneeling several times during a day mm-hmm. at, at the call of prayer comes directly from the practices of Christians and Jews in Medina when uh, Muhammad became a judge there. Hmm. A little history. Wow. Uh, so did that answer your question about the narthex? It's the gathering area. It's the lobby before you go into worship. I, I know this doesn't sound kosher correct or anything like that but there are just sometimes where i'm like there's certain things about very churchy tradition where i'm like it's like they needed to hit their words on an essay like we're going to use this big word and i'll use the sentence to explain it (laughs) so because like for anybody who's a new christian yeah that has to be so confusing and all this stuff comes out of christendom i mean for a time the church was the only game in town and there was much tradition tied into the proper order of things because when you would go to worship, you are going to meet God where he promises to be. And if you don't know how to read, the church, uh, I mean, the church Catholic throughout tradition, uh, throughout history, and and the Orthodox Church were very good about presenting the things of God in a visual form. And the entire worship space had meaning. Nothing is in there, nothing in there is happenstance except maybe the speakers. 
And speakers and microphones serve a practical purpose, but everything else architectural-wise, furniture-wise, is there for a um, preaching purpose for a person who can't read Scripture so that there would be a sense of awe and reverence to God when you enter into this place of worship where God promises to be in his sacraments. And to go back to the sacraments, that's the, the understanding of the sacraments as a gift from God we are very similar with the Roman Catholics on that. Very similar. The direction's different. Um, our understanding of the sacraments are slightly off, but they, they hold the Lord's Supper in high reverence, and so do Lutherans, because we believe that Jesus is showing up in your midst. Okay? So it's, it's the sacred things of God. I want to back up a second. When you talk about Christendom, because uh, you've used it quite a bit today already, um, is that are you, what are you referring to? Are you talking about like the just the worldwide Christians as a whole, or what do you no. mean when you talk Christendom? So Christendom is tied to um, a social, cultural, and political um, dominance. Okay. In an area, and Christianity began with a peaceful revolution that transformed the world when Rome, the most powerful nation on the earth, spent 300 years persecuting Christians. Christianity did not die out. Christianity became the dominant belief system within the most powerful empire in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And that influence of Rome continued with the nations and cultures that took over Rome's place within Europe and and the Mediterranean um, and its influence into Asia and so on and the Middle East. That dominance continued well into the 20th century. In fact, most sociologists think in the United States, the role of Christendom came to an end in 1992. And that doesn't just speak that, you know, you have to be, to be, to be, um, in a place of power in the United States, you have to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. That, that was never the law of the land, but the cultural and social influence of Christianity was very prevalent up until about 1992. It's still very influential in the United States, but it's not influential at all in parts of Europe and in other parts of the world. Are you following what I'm saying? Yep. So Christendom is not Christianity. Christianity is faith in Jesus Christ. It's it's God's kingdom in this world that's known by faith, not by sight. Christendom for a long time was the um, physical, temporal equivalent to God's kingdom on earth. But it wasn't. It's, it's man-made, it's broken, it's imperfect, but it was the cultural, social, and political dominance of Christianity within worldly um, kingdoms and provinces and governments. Okay. Makes sense. So with going off of Ryan's question there, would you say that there is a chance with 1992 being the last time kind of that there was that Christendom within the world? Do you think that opens back up for a second wave of that later on right now and whatnot? Well, I I wouldn't say that Christendom in the world came to an end in 1992. What What I'm saying is that's when the culture in the United States has been measured by sociologists to have shifted enough that Christianity is no longer dominant by itself. Okay. Um, we went from being a Christian society, however you want to label that, 
to a post-Christian society. We were never a Christian society on paper. You know, I mean, it's, uh, uh, but the values of Christianity is what the United States is founded on, right? Um, the Judeo-Christian worldview is what the United States was founded on. 1992 is where sociologists looking back on 1992 have picked that date to say, this seems like the culture shifted enough that it stopped being Christian, Christianity and Christian values are the norm. Mm -hmm. And, and in a good example of that is like, I can remember when my family moved from the Midwest to the West coast, um, there are things that I found very interesting about this. And I moved there right before 1992. Um, what did we do? Well, we were Lutheran. We moved to a new town. So what did we do? We found the closest Lutheran church and we started to attend it. That was the norm. But it wasn't the norm there even then. Because most people, I had classmates who didn't know the name of Jesus. Not just the idea of who is Jesus, like like I don't believe in Jesus, but I know nothing about yeah. this person that you guys called Christians believe mm -hmm. in. Like, what, what what is this all about? Um, you know, they thought Christmas was about Santa and presents, and Easter was about eggs and bunnies. Um, so it was already happening then where the culture itself does not support the values of a Christian worldview. Um, you know, think about... What we use, maybe they still do this in North Dakota. I mean, it's 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 happening in waves across the country. But at some point, we went from having Christmas vacation at winter time to winter break. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we went from having Easter break to spring break. Yeah, right. Um, we went from saying measuring time as BC and AD to BCE and CE. I just found that out like a year ago. The before the common era and the common era, which I find so funny because what is still the defining mark as to what separates the before common era with the common era? Christ. Jesus. Yes. <laughs> Jesus is the line drawn in We're the sand. We're not going to say his name in it. Not going to say his name, but that's what it is. Um, that's what I mean by becoming a post-Christian okay. culture. The culture itself does not support uh, Christian worldviews as well as Christian involvement in the wider society. Okay. okay. So my, my last two to wrap us up here, because I, I hope they don't, and I don't think they do have any of the deep-seated kind of historical tie to this. Phrases like hedge of protection and traveling mercies that kind of you know, I, every Christian loves to you know, type in their Facebook or share with others, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah. And so hedge of protection I've heard. Um, heads, hedge of protection I've prayed. And I, in my head, I just pictured as as God, uh, wrap your loving arms around this person and protect them. You know, a modern way of saying hedge of protection is make a force field around them or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Traveling mercies is new to me. I've never heard that before, uh, ever. I don't know what that is. So when we were planning our parish trip, it was a lot of, that's what ended up being prayed a lot. And I always understood it as like, maybe like helping with the planning, helping with, I don't know. Well. I guess I don't know. Huh. Um, I just hear it the same as asking God to protect you in, in travel, to to show up in your midst, you know. Um, I, 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 would, I would put 
traveling mercies in the same level with um, surprise me, God. And I like that prayer better. For whatever is coming next, Lord, surprise me. Show up in, in my midst. Be with us. Let us see your goodness. Let us experience your grace. Um, that's what I would hear it as. But I'm going I'm to have to try to use that. Traveling mercies. Yeah. yeah. I just okay. looked it up on the Google machine, and yeah, it, it says uh, traveling mercies are prayers that are made for someone who is about to undertake a big journey. There you go. Learn something new. Yeah. All right, Ryan. So. Any questions you got? No, I, I think we I think we got our money's worth out of DJ yeah. today. I th- I think uh Well good, I'm running out of words. I've used <laughs> I've used some big words today, I think. I'm not quite sure. No, it was great. It was good. So, well, DJ, thank you. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, as you heard earlier, we've got Summer with the Psalms coming up. Uh, check out um, uh, YouTube, atonement.live, atonementfargo.org. Um, and, again, you can catch the podcast on Spotify, CastBox, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and, of course, YouTube by searching Atonement Fargo. So for DJ and Sarah um, and Jesus, I'm going to say a prayer before we go. There, we, I was hoping that was coming. Yeah. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for DJ um, and for um, the teaching that he brings us, uh, not just on the podcast, but... Um, every day as we uh, speak with him uh, around atonement here. Lord, I I thank you for the wisdom that he brings, and I thank you for the ability for us to be able to share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, thank you. And for traveling mercies. And for traveling mercies. the hedge of protection. (laughs) For everyone listening. (laughs) 